Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we have a big one for you today. We have a crowd-pleasing, highly requested, very relevant, (laughs) scared Elise immensely (laughs) movie. Yes. And as many of you already know who follow us on Instagram, we are covering Hereditary today. It's time. Mm Mm-hmm. So yes, very scary. Also very mainstream. I knew a couple of the jump scares or the worst parts going into this before we even knew we were doing the movie. There were, you know, memes and tweets and things like that, but it still didn't shield me from the movie. (laughs) It's a doozy. It's very heavy emotionally, which can be hard to sit through, right? When you have really great actors putting on a believable performance, plus it's terrifying. That is a lot. You said it best after we got done watching it together. There are no winners in this movie. (laughs) There are no winners. But this isn't the first Ari Aster film that we've covered on the podcast. We covered Midsummer, which y'all tend to like. It's like our second highest streamed episode like film review episode Mm -hmm. that we have. And Hereditary was actually Ari Aster's first premiered movie. So this was quite a movie to begin his career on or his mainstream career on Mm -hmm. and is very different from Midsummer, but heavy, nonetheless, great acting. Nonetheless, we are just going to the very dark side the very dark foil of Midsummer, both in color and tone and vibe all around. But in creating this movie, Ari Aster said that he wanted to make a film about suffering that took suffering seriously. So in speaking briefly, Midsummer is a movie about a breakup. This is a movie about grief. This is a movie about suffering. What I know this movie best for is the performance by Tony Collette, who isn't fucking everything. I just had a moment where I had to realize that she's had an amazing fucking career and I've seen her in so many goddamn things. And this is like not the first amazing thing that she's done. Tony Collette plays our mom character, but she's also played the mom in The Sixth Sense. She was in Fright Night, Krampus, Velvet Buzzsaw, Knives Out. I'm thinking of ending things as recent as Nightmare Alley. And that's just the horror adjacent stuff. She's got a whole wiki page dedicated Dude, to her. Dude, have you seen I'm Thinking of Ending Things? I have not seen it, but I've heard things about it. Look, if you want to get messed up, if you want to get real nice and messed up, you watch yourself that movie. Talk about no winners. <laughs> I guess Tony Glad's really good at that, just being in movies where there's yeah. no winners. Because I don't think there's any real winners in Velvet Buzzsaw either. No. Very nihilistic, Miss hey, Collette. Well, she's good. Yeah, you're right. She's in so much. Anytime you go to an actor's wiki page and then you have to go to another page for the wiki page, that's how you know it's real. I think the only other time you've had to do that on this podcast is with Sigourney Weaver. And Mm. she's a scream queen herself. But the other main woman in this movie is Charlie. She is Tony Collette's daughter. She's played by Millie Shapiro. And Millie Shapiro has a very different career in Tony Collette, both in length and vibe. She played Matilda on Broadway. (laughs) And that's pretty much what she's done. <laughs> she's very early in her career in comparison to Tony Collette. And rounding out this family structure, we have Alex Wolf, who is known for 
well, I want to say he's known for, but he's also in Old, which is an M. Night Shyamalan movie that came out recently. But he was also in the Naked Brothers Band. Precious. And then the father is played by Gabriel Byrne. And something that's interesting about this film is all three of the other actors, aside from Tony Collette, had worked together in some capacity before or had some pre-existing relationship before filming. So Gabriel Byrne and Alex Wolf had actually played father and son in a different movie prior to this, about seven years prior to the making of Hereditary. And Millie Shapiro and Alex Wolf actually knew each other by going to school together. I guess they went to some acting school together, so they were very familiar with each other. So Tony Collette was the only one who hadn't worked with any of the other members of the family previously. And that is kind of obvious in the way that Tony Collette plays it because she does have more of a isolated black sheep vibe from the rest of her family in this movie for sure. Yeah, that is a good point. Okay, so let's get into it. So we start with a super cool shot. We are in some kind of a workshop looking at a bunch of miniatures, building miniatures. And as we zoom in closer to a house, we get closer and closer to the upper bedroom in the house. We're closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, the camera has arrived at this room. It fills the Meisen scene. (laughs) And we see the scene begin. So we have the seamless introduction into this family world from looking at a miniature and then finding ourselves in the actual house that the movie begins taking place in. And what's cool about these miniatures is they're going to be used as framing devices for the rest of this movie. These are all actual practical miniatures that were made for filming specifically. So as we zoom in on the scene, we see that we are actually moving to that room of the house that is representative of our first character that we're being introduced to's bedroom. And his name is Peter. He is about 16, very typical teenage boy vibes, doesn't want to get out of bed while his father comes in to wake him up because it is the day of his grandmother's funeral. And the grandmother is his mother's, Annie, who is played by Tony Collette's mother. So maternal grandmother is no longer with us. The dad gets Peter out of bed, but then dad has one more kid that he has to go find. And that is 13-year-old Charlie. And she is sleeping outside in a treehouse. And dad is not too happy about that because obviously it is very cold. I don't know that they ever talk about this, but this takes place in Utah. So very cold overnight. And she is just sleeping outside in a treehouse. Very weird. We are getting very weird vibes from 13-year-old Charlie. But nonetheless... We are now on the way to Grandmother Ellen's funeral. And Annie, Grandmother's daughter, is in charge of giving the eulogy at this funeral. And as she stands up and gives it, she even notes that there's a lot of people in the room that she had never seen before. She didn't realize her mother had so many close friends. But Annie seems kind of removed during the eulogy. And you can sense right away, even in the way that at least Peter reacts to having to go to this funeral and the way the dad reacts having to go to this funeral, that there's a little bit of distance between the family and the grandmother in general. Yeah, there is definitely a removed feeling in the way that she's delivering this eulogy. She's even calling her mother difficult at points throughout She's calling her frustrating. You're not really getting a sentimental vibe from this eulogy whatsoever. Peter and the dad are just kind of sitting through it dutifully, whereas Charlie is drawing pictures, pretty crude pictures in her little notebook and making an infamous clicking noise. 
kind of like a cluck pop type of situation. Essentially, it's a clicking sound that she makes with her mouth and she does it maybe as a tick. We don't really know, but the father shuts her notebook very gingerly and makes her pay attention to the eulogy. And that is the end of the funeral. So the next scene that we see is Charlie talking to Annie before bed. And Charlie asks her mother, Annie, who's going to take care of me when you die? Yeah, which is kind of like a puzzling thing. But again, for a kid, maybe this is the first real loss that she's experienced. Who knows what you're going to be thinking about? But Annie reassures her, you know, your family will take care of you. You'll be fine. But as she leaves the room, Annie goes into her workshop and starts to mull through some of her mother's old things just a little bit. She finds a note from her mother that lets her know things are coming and to let them happen. But she quickly puts the box aside, turns out the light. But when she looks back over, she sees an apparition of her mother in the corner, which is very scary. (laughs) She turns the light back on. And of course, apparition is gone and she leaves the room. Also, while she's in the bedroom with Charlie, it's established that Charlie and the grandmother had a special bond. They had a special relationship, even if Annie was removed from her relationship with her mother, which we don't necessarily have the context as to why, but we know that they had a tumultuous relationship to some degree. It is clear that Charlie and her grandmother were very close. But when Annie reminds Charlie about that, your grandmother loved you so much. You guys were the best of friends. Charlie says something to the effect of, Yeah, but she always wished I was a boy. So that's a little strange. We'll revisit that later. Put a pin in that. (laughs) But it's important to know now that Charlie and Grandma had a very close relationship. After Annie leaves her daughter's room, that's when she has that scare with her mother's apparition in her workshop with among her mother's old things. And then we cut to the next day. Charlie is in a classroom. We love these classic classroom scenes where the teacher's lessons align with some of the stuff. Oh, wait, I guess maybe the lecture is happening in Peter's classroom. Nevertheless, Charlie is sitting in class and she sees a bird fly into the classroom window pretty hard. So we can assume that the bird has died, shocks some of the kids. But later, Charlie is outside, wanders over to where the bird is underneath the window takes it and puts it in her pocket only to then take it out later and cut off its head. Casual. Casual. Yeah. It's some you, Esther shit. It really is some Esther shit. And with Charlie's behavior in the classroom, you can tell that she is a little bit of an outsider. You know, they're supposed to be taking a quiz, but instead she's tinkering with this toy that she's making. So she's very creative. She likes to draw. She likes to build things out of trash and clutter. She's very imaginative. But she's also not stylized or really characterized to be in community with anybody. She's very much isolated, a loner. Her hair is very like kept straight down with curtains over her face, kind of. She wears very baggy clothing. She's smaller than a lot of the other people in her class. So you can tell she is definitely one of a kind (laughs) and a little by herself. So it is almost not surprising when she goes and takes a pair of scissors and chops the head off the dead bird and just sticks it in her pocket and unceremoniously eats chocolate while doing it. Charlie's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. But she seems like she's happy with it. She's just doing what she wants. 
So Annie is still kind of concerned about this apparition. She tries to do a little bit of research and Steve, her husband, gets a call from the cemetery that through hearing one side of the phone call, we can assume he has gotten word that Ellen the grandmother's grave has been desecrated somehow, but he decides not to tell his wife when she asks who was on the phone. So strange thing. We're not sure exactly the nature of the desecration, but another thing to tick off, letting us know something weird is going on. And this starts a pattern of the father being very subservient to Annie. He's very Mm. protective of her. And you can tell that he pushes his own grief and emotions aside to take care of and coddle Annie a little bit. You can tell that he's aware that Annie has a lot of demons and has a past and maybe a difficult person, but this begins a pattern of Steve taking on a lot of the emotional labor of the family and Mm. really being the caretaker, and it kind of comes to a head later in the movie. But as far as how we're reading Steve, dutiful, but very submissive. And Annie tells Steve later that night that she's going to see a movie. Steve says, okay, doesn't ask any questions. But she actually attends a grief counseling support situation. At some point during the meeting, she is given the opportunity as a newcomer to speak on why she has attended the meeting if she would like. And she does decide to speak on that reason. She talks about her mother's history of mental health issues, including disassociative identity disorder and dementia. She also talks about how her father has died long before her mother. And so did a brother of hers. Her father had some issues with his mental health in that he was so depressed, he ended up starving himself to death. And then later her brother, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, became convinced that his mother was trying to put people inside of his body And so he did end up killing himself. Yeah. And this is one of many scenes where Tony Collette just fucking unloads in -hmm. terms of just masterclass of acting. You can tell that she feels guilty letting out all of her dirty laundry. You can tell she almost has a level of survivor's guilt by being able to be the only one in her family that's still here and that's still going on that she doesn't feel as though she can talk about these things with her children or her husband, that she's kind of the keeper of all of this trauma and all this information. And you also learn from this exposition that even as she was giving birth to Peter, her relationship with her mom was so contentious at that point that she did not let Peter meet the grandmother until he was much older. But however... Things with her mother had gotten good enough that by the time that Charlie was born, Annie's mother had played a significant role in raising Charlie, even to the point where the grandmother had attempted to breastfeed Charlie at one point. You could tell that some boundaries had gotten crossed and that things had gotten a little weird and that Charlie and the grandmother had a close relationship, but also a raised eyebrow type of relationship. Whereas Peter was a lot more removed from his grandmother, which makes sense as to why he was a little laissez-faire when it came to the morning of the funeral or even emotionally reacting at the funeral because things between Annie and her mother were so contentious at that point. So we're seeing that there's a lot of baggage there. She doesn't really have anybody who understands her parents or how she was raised left. And she's really feeling the weight of this grief, even though she doesn't necessarily think that this support group is going to do much to help her either. 
So later on, perhaps the next day, we see Charlie is in her bedroom. And this is the first time that we see the presence of a light of sorts sort of moving across the room. Nothing really comes of it at this time, but it is something that comes back later. Annie gets a call from the woman who runs the gallery. She's completing her miniature expose for just asking her on her progress. And we get the sense that maybe Annie is, you know, feeling like we just said the weight of what's been going on, but she has a deadline. She's going to try to meet it. And then Peter in the midst of all this asks his mom, if he could go to a party, it is, we know a party, but he asks his mom, if he could go to a barbecue, right. Trying to maybe decrease any worry she would have or increase the chances of her saying yes to his going to a school outing. And she says, yes, but only if his sister can come along. And Charlie does not seem interested in going, but Annie says, well, there's going to be kids there. It'd be cool for you to go. And because we've already established Charlie as an outsider, we can see that maybe her mom would see this as an opportunity for her to make some friends, maybe be on the inside a little bit more. So Charlie is forced to go and Peter has to take her. Especially because the scene before Charlie is just walking outside barefoot in the marsh and just clucking into the day. like. Tony Collette's just pissed and he just wants her daughter to just be normal a little bit. And she's like, you know what? Go with your brother. Get out of here. Especially because the work that Annie's doing isn't the work she should be doing. When she gets the call from the gallery, she's supposed to be doing miniatures of like a school or something like that. Oh, yeah. But she's mm-hmm. instead working on miniatures of her mother's funeral. So you begin oh, right. you begin to see that while Annie's very good at making miniatures, she's very talented. She also uses her art to process through her grief. And you see mm. her do this a couple more times throughout the movie. But you can tell that she's falling behind on her deadlines and that her work is being detracted from because of what she's going through, which absolutely makes sense. But you can tell that the way that she is processing her grief is by almost trying to like make it smaller physically. She's physically making it tiny. She's making Damn. a home for it. And it's it's oh just really my interesting. God. That is so interesting. Wow. I didn't think about it like that. Okay. So needless to say, Peter is not thrilled about bringing his little sister with him to a party where there's going to be this girl from his class that he thinks is super hot. But he goes... He tries to blow Charlie off a little bit to go upstairs and smoke weed with his friends, including the girl from his class. And as Peter is upstairs, Charlie makes her way into the kitchen and has herself a slice of cake, which is my kind of girl. Take me to a party and show me where the cake is because that's what I want. (laughs) But anyway, unfortunately, this cake contains nuts. And our girl, Charlie, is allergic to nuts, which has been established earlier in the movie. And so she quickly starts to feel the effects of the cake. And she tries to calmly walk upstairs. She tells Peter she can't breathe. And I do love this part. Peter right away jumps into big brother mode. The next shot, we see him. He has scooped her up. He is carrying her outside to the car. He gets her in there and he starts to drive away from the party. And it's important to establish, too, that prior to this, we haven't seen Peter and Charlie have a typical brother-sister close relationship. I actually read, I don't know if it was in the IMDb trivia or if it was in an interview, but Ari Aster actually made Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro do brother-sister exercises in character prior to filming. So some of the exercises that they did was send them out to eat where Alex Wolf had to try to get Millie to talk to him for three hours and Millie wouldn't say a word. 
Another one was they <laughs> sent them shopping together and they're in character, right? Like they're not as people. It's Peter in Charlie, but obviously it's Alex and Millie anyway. Right. So then he sent them shopping together and he told Peter, pick out a sweater for Millie pick out a sweater for your sister and they had to find a sweatshirt that she liked in character like without Millie really communicating with him so like he really put them through like an acting class with each other of trying to build this so uncomfortable bond with Mm. one another because they knew each other already they were friendly with one another so he had to put them through these exercises to establish that peter's really trying his best as an older brother but charlie doesn't give him anything to work with because she is so in her own world but yeah like Mm -hmm. you said he does jump into big bro action he's also high as a kite at this Mm. point he had pretty big bong rip and he is flying down this mountain road again we're in utah we we do not have a lot of overhead light situation it's very dark on the road and as he is driving down this road charlie sticks her head out of the window trying to get fresh air because again she's going into anaphylactic shock she can't breathe and something jumps into the road do we know what it is was it like a deer like what was in the road a deer yeah okay so yeah a deer is in the road And Peter has to swerve as to not hit the deer. But as he swerves, he goes onto the shoulder of the road where there is a telephone pole and driving at a high velocity, he decapitates his little sister. Yeah. And he immediately stops and just sits there in complete shocked silence. He does it. I don't think he lets himself look back in the rearview mirror. Like we can see him almost do it, but he quickly decides against it. And then he makes the call to go into drive and just slowly drive home. We see him roll up, park in front of the house, walk inside and go to bed. It's also important to note that engraved on the telephone pole, there is a symbol that we have seen one or two more times in the movie. So it is a symbol that has been present on the grandmother's belongings. Like it was imprinted on a journal that she had. I think it was maybe on the funeral brochure at one point. It's, you know, just like a symbol of like circles and lines. It doesn't look that conspicuous, but it's very specific. And we had seen a shot that that telephone pole had that symbol engraved into it. So again, giving us a little bit of a hint that there's maybe some grand design or that things are maybe being influenced in some mystical way. And then we see a time lapse where it's the next morning and we are just fixated on Peter's face as we hear Tony Collette discover Charlie's body in the backseat Mm -hmm. of the car and just begin screaming. Right. And then we move into a bit of a dazed montage, which I kind of, I love. I think it sort of encapsulates this awful blur that the family is now thrust into yet again, right? On top of losing the grandmother, we see Tony Collette's character cradled by her husband, Steve, her screaming the next shot is the funeral with Tony Collette's character screaming just the same as we had heard her upon first discovering Charlie's body when the casket is being lowered into the ground in a scene very similar to what we saw before at grandmother's funeral. I also wanted to note the positioning of Tony Collette's body while she is grieving. I remember pointing this out while we were watching it, that she is on all fours 
like bent down almost as if she is in prayer or almost Mm. as if she is bowing to something and she's just rocking back and forth. And we see her in this position in her grief, but we also see it paralleled with her in that position later. So just some imagery I want to put in your heads. So the next scene that we see is kind of a quiet moment of Steve grieving himself. He finds Charlie's sketchbook and starts looking through it and starts seeing some of the things that she left behind and he's crying. And then we see Peter kind of covering up his emotions by smoking weed under the bleachers at school. And as he's smoking his weed, he starts to have a panic attack where he feels as though he can't breathe when he smokes the weed. And that's kind of a hint of how Charlie Mm. couldn't breathe very shortly before she died. So very sad. And we also see him ride his bike home from school and pass by his mother who is sitting in her car grieving herself. So we're seeing that these three family members are taking their grief very isolated. They're not coming together. They are not bonding over this experience there is fracturing occurring because of this experience. And you can tell that there is resentment building in Annie that she blames Peter for what happened. So very contentious. And this family is really being driven apart by this accident. So Annie puts her car into drive in that scene and goes to the support group meeting yet again. But Once she gets in the parking lot, she decides against it, turns around to leave, but she is stopped by some random woman who introduces herself as Joan. And Joan ends up giving Annie her contact information and tells her to reach out if she needs anything that she is available to her. And Annie gets home. Steve, it looks like, tries to connect with her maybe come together, spend some time together. But Annie says, no, that's one of the reasons she decides to sleep in the treehouse. And in the nighttime, another spooky moment, Peter is trying to sleep and he hears the iconic Charlie cluck in the corner. And when he opens his eyes, he sees his sister standing in the corner of the room. She's not really doing anything, but then all of a sudden her head kind of tilts forward and then falls off. And then we see that a ball has just rolled toward Peter. So it looks like Charlie's head falls off, but then when it comes out of the shadows and into the light, it's a ball. I don't know. Like, was it just a ball fell off a shelf or is there an apparition that pushed this ball toward him? I don't know. Either way, it's still a very unsettling, creepy scene. Does it represent her head falling off and just rolling and being left behind at the scene, which we do get a shot of a very gruesome scene of the head being eaten away by bugs and it is not recovered for the funeral. And that's important for later. But yeah, very grisly scene that we see there. But against her better judgment, Annie decides to visit Joan because while Joan is kind of a stranger, She doesn't really understand why she feels connected to Joan, but she's like, you know what? I need some feminine energy in my life. Let's go visit Joan. So she goes to visit Joan and Joan begins to tell her about how she lost her grandson and her husband or her son. Like she lost two men that were son. Yeah. Her son and grandson, both to drowning. So she's feeling very significant grief as well. So Annie definitely feels as though she can connect with her. And Annie actually ends up opening up about an incident where Annie had a problem with sleepwalking for a lot of her life. And the worst incident was she had slept walked where she had dumped lighter fluid on both of her children. And when she woke up from sleepwalking, she was about to light a match. So she was about to, in her sleep, 
light her children on fire and kill them and herself. Oh yes. And herself too. Mm -hmm. Right. I forgot about that part, but she was about to kill her entire family essentially. And Peter had woken up during this incident and saw what his mom was about to do. After that incident, their relationship had never really been the same. And she doesn't really understand what happened or where it came from. But you're starting to see that this history of perhaps mental illness in Annie's family or this darkness that is in Annie's family tree has been trying to poke out through her consciousness in some degree, whether it be through her mother's relationship with Charlie or through her dreams. We're starting to see that there's a lot more impacting Annie than we previously had thought. So later, Steve finds Annie working away in her miniature workshop. However, instead of working on what she needs to be working on for her expose, she is working on recreating a scene of Charlie's accident. Oh my God. So she's currently working on like painting the blood around the miniature version of Charlie's head on this like foam board, (laughs) which I'm laughing, but it's, it's not funny. But right away, Steve is like, how do you think Peter is going to feel when he sees this? Thinking very much of his son's feelings and what his son must be feeling. But Annie argues, this is objective. Like, this is an objective viewpoint. I'm just, you know, processing through this. Like, it's not meant to be anything. But again, tension continues to build between the two of them. And you can tell that Annie doesn't really care how her son is feeling because of the scene that follows this. It's a very awkward dinner scene. You can tell that Annie is just very perturbed. She's like stabbing her food very aggressively. And Peter very innocently tries to ask like, mom, is there something on your mind? Like what's wrong? And I forget what dialogue like kicks it off. Do you remember? I think he senses that she is angry with him. And he's like, is there anything you want to say? Is there anything you want to talk about? Like he kind of instigates her just because... You know, I imagine he can't stand this tension. He wants to get it out there in the open. Yeah. So Peter's trying to interrogate how his mom feels. And he's like, just come out and say it, come out and say it. Or maybe he's even trying to like make connection with her to say, like, Mm. I know that you blame me for what happened Mm. to Charlie or whatever like that. And he's trying to make something happen. Something. He just wants to connect with his mom. He just wants to process it. He wants to get it out in the open because, like I had mentioned, All three of these people are are isolating themselves in their grief, and he feels so alone. And it leads to this explosion where Annie blames Peter for what happened straight up. It's like, you are the reason that your sister's dead. She's gone. She's not coming back. We can't change that. You haven't apologized. You don't care. Like, very Mm, accusatory, mm -hmm. very explosive. And again, Steve is just kind of sitting back and letting it happen. And it isn't until Peter defends himself and is just like, she would still be here if you didn't make her go to that party. Mm. And then that's where Steve's like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. And they end the dinner scene. But again, amazing acting from both Alex Wolf and Tony Collette, just being able to just sow that discomfort and sow that anger where you could tell there had been weeks and weeks of tension building to this moment. And it is clear that they are blaming themselves. Definitely Peter is blaming himself, that Annie is blaming Peter But also Peter is blaming Annie a lot for what happened Mm -hmm. to his sister, even though it was an accident. Obviously, it was senseless. No one could have guessed what was going to happen happened. But instead of finding solace in each other, they are pointing fingers at one another. Mm -hmm. 
So next scene, we see Annie at the craft store. She is walking out from making her purchase and she runs into Joan. And Joan is so freaking excited. She runs up to Annie. She is saying that she's so happy. She's so enlightened. She just had an open seance. And although she was so skeptical of it, and she did not believe that psychics could do anything like this or that they were even real, she tells Annie that she was able to connect with her dead grandson, Louie. And she said the psychic taught Joan how to recreate the seance. And she invites Annie to come over and see it for herself. And Annie agrees. And she's kind of like, she's skeptical of it. She doesn't want to go. But Joan is just so excited. And of course, we just saw a scene where Annie was very much missing Charlie, feeling these you know, emotions of loss so strongly. So she ends up going over to Joan's apartment to witness the seance. She's very uncomfortable the whole time. She never really takes to it, even when some things start happening, right? Like there's a glass on the table. Joan and Annie both touch it. The glass moves. Annie is still uncomfortable. Louis starts writing on a chalkboard that apparently was his when he was alive. He's like, I love you, Grammy, or whatever. Joan is crying. Annie starts to become very disturbed. This is such a moment. She's experiencing a lot of feelings. But Joan assures Annie that this is real, that she can too connect with Charlie. And she gives a copy of, or like a handwritten version of what she needs to say in a seance situation in order to conjure Charlie. She has to have something of Charlie's on the table that Charlie's spirit can connect to. And she has to be with everybody in the house. So for her, that would include Peter and Steve. And Annie makes her way out in a haste and thus ends that seance scene. Yeah. And on the way home while she's driving, Annie hears the cluck sound in her back seat. So you are beginning to see that she is getting signs from Charlie or she is at least perceiving those things. And she tries to go home and kind of sleep this very uncomfortable interaction or experience that she just had off. But she wakes up and walks into Peter's room and sees that a swarm of ants is all over Peter's dead body. And that, again, is very similar to the imagery that we had of Charlie previous to that. She is like just staring at him and then comes to and realizes that Peter is sitting up in bed and looking at her and being like, Mom, like, what's wrong? Why are you here? She's not answering. And Peter says, why are you scared of me? And then Annie very involuntarily just says, I never wanted to be your mother. I mean, holy fucking shit. And she puts her hand over her mouth. Like she can't believe what she just word vomited out there. But then she says more. She's covering her mouth. And then when she lowers her hand back down, she's like, I tried so hard to have a miscarriage. and You wouldn't die. And then she comes back up again. Like you could tell she does not want to be telling him these things, but Mm. they're just coming out of her somehow. And then like the imagery starts to change where Peter starts crying and is like, why don't you want me? Why did you try to kill me? And then he's covered in lighting fluid and she's covered in lighting fluid. And then there's a lit match and she wakes up and she was in a double layered nightmare. Yes. A vision within a vision. Yes. A vision within a vision. Which just because it was a dream, it's still, I think, one of the more emotionally intense scenes of the movie. So she decides that she's going to do this incantation that Joan had sent home with her. And she's going to use Charlie's sketchbook while her husband and son sleep. And apparently it was successful, right? Does this happen off screen? 
thing you know, she's just running around the house, waking everybody up and telling them they have to come downstairs for this seance. Yes. She got confirmation off camera that she had made contact with Charlie somehow. So husband, Steve, he's like, no, Annie, no, this is crazy. This is crazy. But Peter actually seeing how passionate his mom is, is like, I'll stay like, I'll stay and I'll do this. Even though Peter is a main character, I feel like we really don't get to know him at all. But this is another moment I really like of Peter, where you can see the love that he has for his family, despite the tension and the chaos and the loss when he steps up because he really wants to do this for his mom. He wants to be there for his mom. You could just tell he's seeking her approval too at this point. Like he feels as though he needs to make reparations because in his mind and in her mind, he is responsible for Charlie's death. And he's like, oh, you're giving me the opportunity to maybe make amends with that. Yeah, I'll stay and I'll do it. So Annie recites the incantation with Charlie's sketchbook, just as she was taught to do, but it doesn't go well. It seems like Annie is somehow possessed. She starts acting very erratically. She's screaming. She doesn't know what's going on. So Steve throws water on her to wake her up. And because of all this chaos, and it had gone on for quite a few moments, Peter is very upset and he is crying. Yeah. Well, part of the reason it was so upsetting is because it was Charlie's voice coming out of Annie's mouth. Oh, yeah. What the fuck? I forgot about that. Oh, my God. It's it's Tony Collette being, Mommy, where are you? Mommy, what's happening? Why are you guys crying? Where am I? Like, it's very Carol Ann through the TV and Poltergeist. She is embodying Charlie and she's clucking and she is acting like Charlie. And Steve is upset because he thinks that Annie's kind of going crazy and is doing things to upset Peter. And Peter is crying because it's his sister's voice. It isn't until she's doused with water that she even realizes that she wasn't even there in present and that she didn't know what was going on. But after that moment, that is the end of that. But we see that Charlie's spirit was conjured in some degree. Mm -hmm. So next day at school, Peter is sitting in class and he sees that strange light that we mentioned before that Charlie had seen in her room appear in the classroom. And sometimes we see it, it looks like it's sort of like a a moving line that encapsulates the room, but then concentrates into a single bright spot on the wall. So we see it kind of appear in many forms obviously unsettling, but he also notices in his own reflection when he looks into like a mirrored cabinet that his reflection is looking back at him with a different expression than what he is looking at the mirror with. And it's sort of a very maniacal half smile, very malicious. And I believe this is enough to upset Peter where he gets sent home early from school. And this creates even more of a chasm between Steve and Annie because Steve is mad at Annie for trying to conjure up these supernatural things and freak his son out and not contributing to his healing at all. You know, her shenanigans are kind of making things worse for Peter. And Steve says without saying, like, we still have a kid that we need to show up for, and you're not doing that. You're making it worse. So, in frustration, Annie trashes her studio and breaks all of her tiny little models while in the background, she receives a voicemail again from her client asking for the progress on the models. So, again, you are starting to see that she's falling apart. She's not able to maintain productivity. She is not returning to normal. She is beginning to spiral even further down this rabbit hole. There's also a scene where we see Charlie is supernaturally drawing in her sketchbook. 
pictures of her brother with X's over his eyes as though he is dying or will be dead, which is very unsettling. And that night, Peter has a nightmare too. So a little prolific. He has this nightmare where he is being choked and he's screaming and he's screaming out in his sleep. So Annie runs in to help him. And because of this amount of distrust that's been sowed between mother and son, he accuses her of trying to kill him in his sleep, just like she tried to do once again with the lighter fluid in the match. So you could tell that family ties are completely broken. There is no level of trust between the two of them now. This is where Annie continues to push the narrative that there's supernatural things happening. She realizes they're evil now. Like she, this is when she kind of is like, all right, I got to destroy this notebook. It was drawing weird pictures. Things have been weird. My son's having nightmares. And she tries to throw it into the fireplace. But then her arm catches on fire. And it only is put out after she takes the notebook out of the fire and puts the notebook out. So she's like, what the fuck is going on? Not really sure how she's going to stop this at this point. So she decides to go to Joan for help because this is kind of what's kicked off all of this action was this advice from Joan. So she tries to visit Joan in her house, but Joan does not answer the door. And we get to see from the inside of Joan's house and inside of Joan's house, we see a bunch of witchcraft paraphernalia. There's a bunch of candles being lit. And then there is a pentagram-like formation of candles. And inside of the pentagram is a picture of Peter. So we are beginning to get some hints that Joan is not this friendly neighborhood grieving woman. She has been planted and she is acting in a very antagonistic way to Annie, even though Annie does not know it yet. So evil is afoot. So Annie recognizes, I think she kind of gets a hint from this doormat that Joan has paired with the events that have been occurring. She senses something is wrong. She goes home and finally looks through that old box of her mother's belongings and finds some highlighted sections of an old witchcraft book. She finds pictures of her mother with Joan, showing that Joan was not, in fact, a stranger, that she did know Ellen when she was alive. And in this book with the highlighted section, she reads about a fellow named Payman. (laughs) Um, Elise, why don't you tell us about Payman? (laughs) Okay. Some of this is in the movie, but I found a lot of it repeated in a Thrillist article that reads, quote, Payment first appeared in the anonymously written grimoire called Lesser Key of Solomon, which I believe is 17th century, where he's called a great king, one of Lucifer's most obedient devotees, and a master of art and science. In most lore, he is known for riding a camel, having an effeminate face, and for following a procession of demons playing instruments like cymbals and trumpets. Solomon also states that Payman is the ruler of 200 legions of spirits, most of them angels, that summon him. And that to summon him, quote, within a quote, thou must make him some offering. And just a little side note, I looked up the size of a legion and it depends on the era what the size is, but the number I find the most of is a legion is around 6,000 men. So that means payment is rolling up squad deep with 1,200,000 angels and demons. That's a lot of guys. That's a lot. A lot of guys. So he's a big deal. And we also have some on-screen exposition that we get through highlighted passages, like you said. 
And in those highlighted passages, we see that Payman prefers a male body as his host. But in order for Payman to take on the form of a male body, it needs to be vulnerable enough for him to enter. So we don't really know exactly what that means, what vulnerable means, all that kind of stuff. But knowing that we have earlier seen Peter's image in these symbols, we're starting to worry a little more about Peter at this point. Next thing you know, we're back in school. There's a lot of moments. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of shit that Peter has to deal with at school. There's always like weird shit happen to him when he's just trying to like sit through a lecture. But next thing we know, Peter is outside of school and he hears Joan, whom he does not know. So to him, it's a random woman. We know that she is Joan screaming across the street at him. I expel you. Not fun. Which she's not a principal. She can't do that. No, she does not have the authority to expel him. Uh-huh. But yeah, Peter is freaked out and he hears Charlie's cluck yet again. And then when he is back in class, suddenly he is possessed and bashes his face into his desk. Yeah, we see the blue light channel toward him. And again, this blue light has been present throughout the movie. We've seen it kind of flit. The blue light comes toward him and he becomes overtaken and smashes his face into the desk. And fun fact, not so fun fact, actor Alex Wolf actually broke his jaw in this scene by smashing his face a little too hard into the foam desk. That is insane to me. To be so engrossed in your own character that you actually break your own face. I mean, that's We hear stories about that, but I think that that's incredible and insane. And I don't know. I can't help but think about him as a person. And I know you said this before, but coming away from acting this part and literally needing to like rest and recuperate because of the emotional trauma that he actually felt playing the part of this person who was going through emotional trauma. Like that's just a lot. That's a lot. As this is happening too, Annie is looking for more clues in terms of things that could maybe give her an idea of what's going on through her mom's belongings. So she pulls down her hatch attic door and we've learned on this fucking podcast that having a hatch attic doesn't lead to good things. Example A, the hallow. Example B, (laughs) better watch out. Example C, black Christmas. You don't want a hatch attic door. Anyway, she goes into the hatch attic door and there's a shit ton of flies. And what Mm -hmm. do flies like? Shit and dead things. So Mm -hmm. she goes up, tries to investigate the source of her infestation only to find her mother's headless body in the attic. Yeah. What the fuck? Like surrounded by lit candles. Very ceremonious. Mm -hmm. Like there is some shit going on. Steve brings Peter home. And Annie, right away, before the car can even park, goes up to Steve. Peter is like asleep in the backseat. She's like, Steve, oh my God, I'm so glad you're home. I think my mom's dead body is in the attic, but it's totally headless now. And I found out all this crazy information about that woman, Joan, that I was befriending, that she's actually somebody who knew my mom. And I read this stuff about this demon payment and... You know, I'm thinking that maybe we summoned a bad demon when we used Charlie's notebook to bring her back. And you have to look, you have to look, you have to look, (laughs) which for Steve sounds absolutely insane. 
But he does look and he does discover that indeed there is a dead body in the attic. But again, Annie keeps going off about this cult, this symbol that Joan knew Ellen. And he's like, who the fuck is Joan? And she's like the grief group. And he's like, I thought you were going to the movies. Like, there's a lot, right? And if we are in Steve's shoes, we're not trusting Annie at this point, right? Because Annie's all of a sudden wanting to do seances. She's openly blaming our only other surviving child for our other child's death. She's talking Mm -hmm. about witchcraft. And again, remember earlier in the movie, he's the one who got that call about the desecration of Ellen's grave. So now he's thinking maybe she's the one who stole the body because otherwise who would have put a headless dead body in their attic? So again, not looking great. However, Annie's going on and on and on and saying, listen, this book is Charlie's and it needs to get thrown in the fire and we need to burn it. And when once we burn it, we're going to cut our ties to the spirit realm. But when that happens, I'm going to die. So I love you, but I need you to kill me and I need you to throw this in the fire for me because I can't do it myself. And I love you so much. Thank you for being the love of my life, but I'm ready to die now. And he's like, what the actual fuck right. are you doing? Also, just so mm. we know where we're at geographically, Peter's upstairs sleeping through this entire thing because he just Mm. shattered his entire fucking face on a wooden desk. Finally, Steve's like, you're nuts. I can't do this with you anymore. You need help. We need to get you into counseling. We need to call the police. There's a lot of shit going on. So Annie, in a bit of frustration, is like, fine, I'll do it myself. Grabs the book, throws it in the fireplace. And what happens? Steve catches Steve fire. Combust. Steve combust. <laughs> Steve, no. Steve goes so home. But it seems like he has a pretty quick death. I mean, for catching on fire. But I mean, like, hit totally, like, his whole body's on fire. So it goes pretty quick, which is good. Awful way to die, though. Awful, awful to see this happen to our guy, Steve. And, of course, Annie is devastated. She can't believe her eyes. She is so upset. That's what we're stuck with. We're just on her very frozen, shocked expression. Then we see the blue light emanate toward her. Oh, yeah. Enter her body. And then her face all of a sudden becomes very calm. So we are starting to see that there is a correlation between this blue light and some element of possession. Is it Charlie? Is it Payman? Is it something else? We don't really know. But as we are seeing, this blue light is flitting from family member to family member and making them do some crazy shit. So the next thing we know, we're in Peter's bedroom and Peter is finally waking up from his little slack jawed induced nap and Mm -hmm. starts looking around and is sitting up on the edge of his bed. And this is so brilliantly shot, in my opinion, because it's so dark in the room. The way that Ari Aster kind of does it is he imitates your eyes getting used to the dark, almost like say you're waking up in the middle of the night and you have to like look around your room. And at first everything is so pitch black, but then as you sit with it a little longer, your eyes begin to get used to the dark and you start to make out shapes and you start to make out where there's a little bit of light and you're rubbing the sleep out of your eyes. But he does that with a fixed shot where all of a sudden it's a very dark shot. You see Peter's face and like the window, but then it gets a little lighter, a little lighter, a little lighter, a little lighter. And as it starts to get a little lighter, you begin to see something in the top left corner of the screen that shouldn't be there. Um, It's fucking Annie possessed, hovering in the corner on the wall, like a little... A big spider. Spider-Man, Spider-Man style. (laughs) Just up perched in the corner like, yo, what's up? Yeah, just watching. And it's awful. It's scary. Also, you know, 
sucks to see a character that you have gotten to know possessed all of a sudden. It's never fun. So Peter all of a sudden gets this notion that somebody's watching him. But when he goes to look, we see that Annie is gliding out of the room. So he does not see his mother at this time. But we know she's somewhere. (laughs) We know she's out and about. Instead, he goes downstairs to investigate where he discovers the piano has been flipped over. The room is in disarray. He doesn't understand what's going on. And then he discovers his dad's very charred body laying on the ground. He is obviously very shocked and upset. But as he is taking a moment to process this, fucking Annie comes charging at him from the corner of the room. Mm. It's terrifying. She's just running at him. He goes running up the stairs and ends up pulling on the attic door and running into the attic and pulling up the hatch attic door just in time to get away from his mother, who is in hot pursuit of him. She is pounding on the hatch attic door with, you would assume, I don't know, her fist, fist? maybe. (laughs) What is it, Elise? It's not her fist. It's her face. It's her face. (laughs) She is in complete Spider-Man mode on all fours on the ceiling, rhythmically slamming her fucking forehead into the hatch attic door. Like fast rhythm. Real fast. Like you can't as a human move your head that fast. Might I say breakneck speed? I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Breakneck speed fucking speed it's horrifying it's in my opinion one of the worst images of the movie just seeing her i don't know it's very exorcism too like i don't know it's just giving me a lot of weird contorted shit right but we also know as the audience that the attic is not a safe place and peter finds what we have seen before minus the dead body but the outline of the lit candles and instead of the body in that outline a picture of him with his eyes scratched out. Yes. So then we're met with a sound. It's like a dripping sound. It's coming from up in a corner somewhere. It sounds a little sloshy. It sounds a little grindy. We don't necessarily know what it is. That's good. Peter is looking around, doesn't know exactly what it is, but what does he find up in the ceiling? But his mother, who is again hovering in the top corner of the room, making aggressive eye contact with him and severing her head off with a piano string. Mm-hmm. We were clued into this because the piano was toppled over downstairs. That was a l- little bit of a motif that something was about to happen, but she has the piano string wrapped around her neck. And she is pulling on either side of it, almost like you would push a table saw, like pushing and pulling. But she is instead using that to cut her own head off. And she starts out slow and is making eye contact with him as blood and guts are dripping, but then really makes a severe face and starts doing it faster and faster and faster and faster. And as that is happening, he is looking obviously in horror But as he starts to maybe try to retreat and go back down the hatch attic door, he sees naked people in the attic. Fucking naked people. Fucking naked people in the attic. And he then decides to be like, fuck it. And then jumps out a fucking window and Mm -hmm. plummets three stories down into some bushes. And you can't blame him. You can't blame him. What else could you do? There's naked people and a beheading happening. As Peter's body lays there, we're not sure if he's dead or alive. We hear what we can assume to be the end of Annie, the final sound effects that indicate that her decapitation is complete. And after we hear that 
that light comes down, seems to rest itself on Peter's back, and then he wakes up. And then he starts to walk toward the treehouse where he saw that there was a light on in the treehouse earlier in the evening. And as you look around, there is more naked people Mm -hmm. lining the tree lines, looking in on the house. They are surrounding the treehouse and he climbs up inside the treehouse, but only after he sees his mother's headless body floating into the treehouse. Oh, yeah. 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 But it's important to note here that he does not seem disturbed by this sight. You can tell that he has this very fixed feeling and then he clucks his mouth. So, Mm. okay, we got some payment. We got some Charlie. What the hell is going on? He climbs inside the treehouse where he sees a deity, almost like a Jesus type statue with a crown on. But the head that is sitting on top of the statue is Charlie's deceased head wearing Mm. this devilish crown. This is where we meet Joan. Joan is in the treehouse. She's wearing some ceremonial garb. And in this, he looks over and sees that his grandmother's dead body and his mother's dead body are both in worship positions, both headless. Still, heads are nowhere to be found, both in worship positions ahead of this payment statue. Joan essentially explains that, hey, Charlie... It's okay. Your name is Payman. You're one of the kings of hell. We've been trying really hard to bring you here for the longest time, but you're here now and we're here to worship you and we're here to learn from you. Hail Payman. And then all of the naked congregations there bowing and everyone starts yelling, Hail Payman, while the devilish crown is rested upon Peter's head. And he just looks very listlessly on at his worshipers. And similar to how the movie begins. The movie ends with a shot of that scene as a miniature form, and then the movie's over. So what the fuck, right? Like, I literally took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, we have some things. We have some things that we're going to talk about because Shay and I had some questions, all right? We were like, first of all, what? (laughs) First of all, all, (laughs) First of all, what? Second of all, what's the deal with payment? I don't really understand. Third of all, what's the deal with the heads? (laughs) Why heads? What's going on? Let's go through pretty much what we understand. Me and Elise had a lot of conversation after this movie. We watched it together of what we understand the timeline to be of payment, the possession, what the deal with Charlie was, what the blue light was. This is our understanding of it. Essentially, what we have learned is that payment needs a male host. We learn throughout Annie's family tree that her father killed himself. Her brother killed himself after the mother, Ellen, the grandmother, tried to put people in his head. So Payman didn't survive. This is where Annie cuts grandma off, goes off, has Peter, but Peter has no interaction with grandma, right? Payman needs a male host. So grandma, being the holder of Payman at this point, Payman is in grandma, decides to give Payman to Charlie as Charlie was a baby because as we read earlier in the movie, Payman needs a vulnerable host. And the most vulnerable host at that point, obviously, is a baby child. Charlie, a baby child. child. So (laughs) my take on it is that Charlie was never Charlie. Charlie was Payman the entire time, which is why Charlie is so fucking weird and Charlie is beheading birds and Charlie doesn't speak because if we're assuming Payman's consciousness was put into Charlie, Payman isn't conscious of himself. Payment isn't Mm -hmm. conscious that he is a demon of hell or is a king of hell. 
Heyman is just maturing in the body that he's in and the body that he's in has been of a mm. child of his first 13 years. Now, when grandma dies, Joan takes the reins of trying to transfer Payman into the rightful host, which is a male body. But the only way that Payman can be transferred is if these bodies are vulnerable. So thus kicks off a series of events to weaken Peter enough because Peter was always going to be the intended holder of Payman, being that he shares a bloodline with Annie and Grandma Ellen. But the only way to make him weak enough was to pretty much implode his family around him by making him responsible for Charlie's death, a.k.a. the telephone pole with a symbol on it, and then fracturing the relationship with his parents and creating all this level of distrust. But you saw that Payman had to fleet between different hosts throughout the movie because he can only overtake what's vulnerable. The only inconsistency with that is if Payman isn't aware of what he's doing or if Payman is evil why is he like being aggressive when he's in Tony Collette's body, but being very reserved and weird when he's in Charlie's body and Peter's bodies? That's like the only thing that's maybe a hole in that theory. But essentially, payment was always meant for Peter. And the only way that payment could go in Peter is if trauma happened and suffering happened. And now payment is in Peter and they are one. Yeah, I think that's right. And we talked about this too. I would love a prequel to this movie. I'm really interested in all of these other events that we have heard of and maybe seeing a prequel would help solidify this lore a little bit more and maybe answer some of these questions that we have. But yeah, I mean, I think other people would probably be into the idea of a prequel too. So the other question we had was why decapitation? Like, what is the deal here? Clearly, you know, having three generations of women from the same family decapitated is meant to be symbolic somehow. In some research I did, I found that hereditary is often described as an allegory for genetic mental illness. And we do get some of that in the movie. You know, this question of, Annie, are you adopting some of this dissociative identity disorder that your mother also experienced? Are you experiencing any schizophrenia like your brother? Some of that questioning of Annie's mental well-being definitely was part of the distrust that ended up being harbored between her and her husband. So looking into this, the Stanford Daily writes of the film, quote, the Western concept of madness has been intrinsically tied with gender. The word hysteria finds its roots in the Greek word for uterus, eventually developing into the 19th century definition as a diagnosable mental illness in women. In the mid-20th century, the number of American women hospitalized for mental illness far outnumbered the number of male patients. Likewise, the film's depiction of female madness follows a history of literary and visual representations in this area, from the famous hallucinatory speech of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth to the unnamed woman in the yellow wallpaper's freedom in her delusion. I thought this was interesting, thinking about the idea of hysteria, the origins of that word coming from the very gendered perception of a woman and her mental awareness. I feel like depictions of hysteria are often connected to masculinity in some way, like in a sense where power or control is lacking or lost on the part of the woman, which I think is interesting, like hysteria seemingly as something focused on women or femininity, womanhood, but still being connected to the absence of manhood or masculinity or power. And continuing with the examples in the Stanford Daily, so Lady Macbeth goes mad with guilt after her husband kills King Duncan, 
And while some might argue that it's her failed attempt to execute power that drives her to this point, her husband's choice to start taking various actions without her knowledge could be her breaking point since it cuts her off from any remaining control. And then from the yellow wallpaper, the unnamed narrator's continuous confinement, staring at the yellow wallpaper and lacking control in her surroundings is what ultimately drives her to insanity. So we can see in both of those examples that that element of masculinity is still present. And I'm curious <laughs> then if it's a coincidence that Payman, a masculine entity, ultimately leads three generations of women in our movie to literally lose their heads. So yes, mental illness can be hereditary from a genetic standpoint, and that aligns with Astor's allegory. But gender expectations entrenched in our society's standards feel hereditary too sometimes, and they're often passed on to us from our parents as well. So maybe this movie is also commenting on the gender hierarchy's knack for leaving women powerless in the wake of powerful men. It's also interesting because that leads into what I noticed about the film, the idea of masculine energies possessing female bodies. Because I think that is the main question. Who is to blame here? Is it payment or is it these women or the people in this cult for wanting to conjure this masculinity out of nothing? and make it at the expense of women. Something that I was curious about after watching this movie is thinking about why was Payman in Charlie the entire time? And obviously the idea of possession isn't new. I would call this a possession movie, but it's not a necessarily as on the nose representation of possession as one might consider something like The Conjuring or even Insidious to be. But I found a cool quote from an article in most films about demonic possession, women are simply vessels by Emily Gaudet. And she writes, demonic possession stories in film began in that groundbreaking, shocking moment where Reagan sticks a crucifix in her vagina in The Exorcist. But creativity in the genre has dissipated since. Demonic possession films have suffered from a lack of originality, especially in regards to gender roles. In The Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Last Exorcism, The Devil Inside, The Possession, and Sinister, the vessel chosen by each masculine gendered demon is a young, attractive woman. When a demon possesses a girl, movies often run through the checklist of behaviors, body contortions, for example, and a new uncharacteristic penchant for foul sexual language. It's easy to see what draws tired, uncreative artists and audiences to films like this. The promise of seeing a virginal, innocent girl manipulated into something monstrous. Demonic possession films in the last decade don't tend to victimize able-bodied men. Instead, heroic men are usually the characters who have to look inside themselves, forgive their own faults, and avenge the female victim. So we see hints of this in Hereditary, right? In a sense that we see a masculine energy taking the embodiment of a young girl. However, when I was trying to compare this to other well-known exorcism movies, I had some thoughts. I was thinking about this, and essentially, Charlie's possession is different in the sense that payment imposes masculinity, macabre interests, and a vocal tick to alienate Charlie from her peers and family. Not in the sense that payment is making Charlie overtly sexual or contorting her body in a weird way, but it's instead using alienation to kind of make her more vulnerable and make her more lonely. For example, Charlie walks outside barefoot, she retreats to a treehouse to sleep, and draws crude pictures during funerals. Instead of Peter coming to her rescue, he is the reason for her death. 
And more interestingly, the consciousness of Payman was imposed on her by her maternal grandmother, not Payman himself. Payman maturing within a young girl's body allowed him to navigate the world without social power, making his possession of Peter less about the malevolence of Payman himself, but more about the betrayal of the women in Charlie's life for failing to protect her. Mm. Because in every other possession film, you just kind of see that a girl wakes up one day and is all of a sudden like, Pazuzu and spinning her head around and puking and being like, but instead, Charlie would have grown up presumably to live a normal life if it wasn't for her grandmother's influence. Her grandmother is the one that transferred Payman's consciousness into her body. So thinking about this again, where it's like, Mm. is Payman at fault for living within this vessel? Or is it the fault of these women? There are men present in the cult. I do want to say that. But the power and the action is being driven by Joan, is being driven by Ellen. And then at the end, obviously, is being driven by a possessed Annie to get payment into his anticipated body. Obviously, this cult was out and about and doing shit the entire time. But (laughs) payment's like, "Mm, no, I need a dick. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's still so weird. I'm also interested in like every description I find of Payman. There's not much to say about him, but every description I found, which was like maybe like three or four, always includes that he had an effeminate face. Which is interesting like, considering that yeah. last scene of Charlie's face on top of the body. Yeah. Yeah. Like why that detail? And in this movie with these themes, like I wonder if it's of all the demons that could have been selected, is that one of the reasons why Payman was selected? Because it seems like I don't know, he already possesses an element of femininity, but prefers to inhabit a masculine body. And we see that progression throughout the movie of, like you said, trying to get payment into this anticipated vessel. Like, what is the deal there? Yeah, I don't know. Like, again, why was Ellen the holder of payment? Like, was there not a man in the cult that could have been payment? Like, is it because it's in this bloodline? Like, I get the movie's called Hereditary. So I'm guessing that (laughs) payment needed to be within this bloodline for a reason. And I even found it interesting, too, that Annie's brother's name was Charles. That's why Charlie was named Charlie. Even the connection between the fact that Charles was supposed to be the intended recipient of payment, but then because Charles killed himself, it ended up being Charlie and there's that level of connection. Like, again, we don't really get that big of a backstory as to like what the motivations are with payment or like why Ellen was infatuated with payment. But you're right. I think this movie definitely has the room to have a prequel to really (laughs) like flesh out this family tree and why him specifically, like there's seven other kings of hell, like not one of them (laughs) also joan lost her son and grandson Mm -hmm. from drowning like is that part of this they're really just killing off all these men in these family trees i mean obviously the husband dies and peter as we know it dies men don't last in this movie i mean well the women don't keep their heads but the men don't last (laughs) either again there's no winners no winners no winners no stinking winners So having all this said and watch the movie, I know you watched it a couple of times. What are your final thoughts? How do you feel? I think this movie does very similar things to what the Babadook does in terms of showing an unflinching portrait of grief. I mean, you can get lost in the payment lore forever, right? And like, why, why the blue light and why this and why the bird head and all that kind of stuff. But I think what Ari Aster does in his best is identify an experience, identify an emotion, 
and find a way to stare at that for two hours unflinchingly to the point where you and I watch this and we're like, we're fucking exhausted. Like, this is so much to take in. And again, I'm so upset that Tony Collette didn't get the accolades she deserved for this because the amount of range and the amount of power that she explicated conveying everything that Annie does in this movie looked exhausting and it looked horrifying, but she's so fucking good in it. I think that's what Ari Aster does his best. And that's what I expect him to do. Even if there are some parts of the lore that maybe leave some question marks, I think he knows what matters and he knows what he wants you to focus on. And that is what these characters are going through. And I think he did really well. The cinematography is beautiful. The actors all did fucking incredible in it. And I'm just really excited to see what he does next. What did you think? I know. Me too. I felt very moved. I felt very affected, similar to watching his other film, Midsummer. The thing about this movie is that it forces you to confront a lot of discomfort in a lot of different categories. And, you know, anytime you walk away from a film and you can't stop thinking about it, I feel like that's a sign that it was successful in a lot of ways as a piece of art. I don't think I would have had as positive of an experience with it if I didn't know a couple things going into it, though. Like, I can't imagine watching this film cold. (laughs) I think I would have had a breakdown. And even, like I said, you know, I knew a couple spoilers and I had read a couple things. There were still at least two or three moments where I involuntarily shrieked on the couch as we were watching this. Like, it's scary. And it was tough. And I don't know if I'll ever revisit it. Like there are some movies we've covered that I'm like, I would love to watch that again. But this one, I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm just going to leave it there. (laughs) I don't know. It's not a feel good film. It's not a film where you can even like really root for a final girl because there isn't Mm -hmm. one. Joan, Mm -hmm. maybe. But like, that's not even like, no, you don't want to root for her. If there was a prequel though, I would revisit it. Yeah. I have questions. But that's hereditary. There you go. So many of you fucking wanted it. Now you got it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I hope that you enjoyed it. But the next thing we're doing should be a lot more fun and a lot more high spirits than this one was. Yes. Do you want to give them a preview of what we're doing? Yes. So we are going to be doing a prom episode in the spirit of prom season that is quickly coming upon us. We will be watching prom night and carry both versions of those movies. So collectively, we'll be talking about, I guess, two franchises, but four movies and talking about prom, the tropes, the patterns, virginity, embarrassment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, identity. I'm excited and changing expectations through the years as well. It'll be very similar to our Puritan ladies episode, looking at witches mm-hmm. through the ages. We'll be looking at prom through the ages. So it should be fun. Until that comes out, it'll be a couple of weeks, right? We're taking a little bit of a spring break. We are taking a little bit of a hiatus just so I can get my shit together. But the next episode you hear, we will be together. We will be in person. All will be well and merry and bright. And we're just really excited to talk about prom. But if you have any ideas or any suggestions of what you want our summer programming to be, or some films you want us to revisit for a scared girl summer or a slasher summer or some other alliterative matchup, feel free to contact us. Yes, you can find us on Instagram at the horrors podcast. 
That is definitely where we post updates and where we have some interactive polls and questions sometimes. So if you are interested in staying up to date, definitely follow us there. Or you can email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.